And all of our focus needs to always be on the foundation of who Christ is. And the reason that we know that and what the foundation is, is the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. And so Paul, as he was writing his letter to the church in Rome, he reminded us of this. In, you don't need to turn to this. I'm going to have you turn to some other stuff. But in chapter 1, in verse 15, we already know that he's talking to Christians. And he says this, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So he's saying you're going to preach the gospel to people who are already Christians? Absolutely. Because we find so much, even at the end of, of the book of Romans, as Paul is explaining everything that happened, the greatness of who God is, and everything that's so important about how we worship Him, he reminds us again to always preach the name of Jesus. That's really all that preaching is. If we don't talk about Jesus, none of it matters. And so many times it gets so confusing for us as we go to church, as churches continually preach to you about love and harmony and how to be a husband and how to be a good wife and how to be a kid and all of those things. Even though those are awesome and straight from the Word of God, what happens a lot is that we get confused because the world usually teaches the same thing. So when you look at the principles of the Bible and you don't study on preaching Jesus and the reason why we do them, then they get confused and it leads to moralism. And it leads you guys to coming to church saying, I need to put on a certain face or I don't get to fit in. And the thing that we have in our hearts is a default setting. If you guys have ever bought a computer or your iPhone or your phone, there's a default setting that happens. And I wanted to look up the definition so that I seem smart, but I have to read it because I didn't know what it was. But I thought it was, you know, I know what it means, but sometimes these definitions are good. It says this, it's a value that a program or operating system assumes or a course of action that a program or operating system will take when the user or programmer specifies no overriding value or action. Whatever, right? Whatever that means. The idea there is is that when we're born, our default setting in our heart is towards religion. And religion can be defined in a way that I like a lot that says, do what I say and you can be accepted. And so for us as humans, everything that we've ever done as people throughout history have searched for God and have been so confused, what have we tried to do? We've tried to climb that ladder of religion, of trying to fit in, to make sure that we look right when we come to church every week. And that is such a horrible place to be and such a horrible place to live. I find myself doing it all the time, and I don't even mean to do it. And I need to tell you a story that's a little bit crass, just to give you this illustration. Our son Cooper, who's six months old, was downstairs watching cartoons with our girls, Jossie comes upstairs and says, Mom, Cooper messed everywhere. And that was a little bit of an understatement because he was sitting in this little stand-up exosaucer thing that has a little bouncy deal underneath. He had messed out of his diaper, went down his legs onto this platform, and he was just skiing in it, just loving it, squealing, and just smeared it everywhere. And it was such a mess, and our grandparents don't live by us, so that is something that you have to share. So I go in to wash it off, I'm holding up this thing just covered in poop. And I want to take a picture of it in the bathroom our girls use. And I notice that they didn't put their clothes away from taking a bath the night before. So I kick it out of the way so that my parents don't think that our house is messy. (laughs) How typical is that of us? I'm taking a picture of poop. And I don't want them to see the girls' clothes underneath as if they're going to be fooled. Isn't it so hard for us to not want to be accepted? To want to be able to be somebody that's not embarrassed, that doesn't have to stand out. We want so much to be able to get accepted that we strive so hard. But what's so amazing about the gospel is this. 
It's a thing called imputed righteousness, which is a really big word. But what that means is Jesus' righteousness is now put on you as a believer of Christ, which means this. We are separated from God because of our sin. That is a word that is translated into English from a word from, that the English used for shooting an arrow. And whenever you miss the mark, that used to be a word called sin. I wasn't there, but this is what I've read. I might be wrong, but they call that sinning if you miss. God is so holy, guys. That's just the bottom line. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not telling you my opinion. And when we figure out the rules of God and how big he is, that's just the bottom line. I don't even understand what holiness is. I, he tries to describe what holiness is. He described what holiness is through all of Scripture, through the sacrifices that the Israelites had to make and, and God's chosen people and all of these things that he did to try to explain what it was like to, get his, to be so glorious and perfect. Can't explain it to you. Wish I could. Maybe if I went to some more one-on-one classes, I could. I can't explain to you what holy is. But guess what? We're not holy. And so what happens is, and this is just the rules of how it works, the same way if you jump off a cliff, you fall. It's just one of the rules. If you stand in God's presence and you're not absolutely holy, you can't stand it. I don't know what happens. It's something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, your eyes get sucked out. I don't know what happens, but it just can't happen. And so for us as humans, we are missing the mark every day. And for those of you who think that you're pretty good people, even if you set the standard of what you thought was good on your own, you still wouldn't be able to keep it. And so when we have this example of this holy God, it's impossible for us to be able to hit that mark every time. The only way that we can find true holiness is through perfect obedience. Didn't take us long as humans to mess that up, right? So what happened was, is that through this incredible story of sacrifice and how um, the, the one life needed to be given to make you holy and through the sacrifices of sheep and all of this stuff. It was all pointing to Jesus. The entire Bible is pointing towards Jesus as God's lamb who takes away everybody's sin. And so Jesus came and lived the life we could never live and he died the death that we deserve. And when we give him our hearts, when we say, God, I realize that I can't be perfect, his righteousness is put on us. Our sin was put on him and he defeated it by dying in our place and overcoming death. That's the gospel. And what happens is, is that through time, that gospel has been grossly perverted to say that we have anything involved in it at all. Grossly perverted. What we're saying is that, Jesus, your blood is not good enough, and you dying on the cross, eh, it's okay. But remember, if I don't wear a tie to church, I'm still not going to get into heaven. If I watch R-rated movies, I'm not going to get into heaven. It's pretty clear in my culture if I don't listen to music that's on K-Love, I'm not getting into heaven. We're not even going to get to that stuff yet, but I just want you to know if you say that, it's a perversion of the gospel. So what everybody says is right away, because we want to fight the whole way. Well, you saying that I can just do whatever I want? Paul says, absolutely not. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. It's not that. When you're changed by God and people can't see it in your life, there's no change happening. That's just the bottom line. Do you sin more so that we get more grace? He's like, what are you talking about? Are you in love with God or not? Do you love him? Do you appreciate what he's done? Because now, as we have God's righteousness on us, our job is to be a mirror of God. When we've talked about our love series and all of those things, it can be so overwhelming. I was just with somebody um, about a week ago who just was crying because how can I ever love my wife the way she needs to be loved? You can't. It's not possible. How are you going to do that? You're a rotten sinner. You can't do it. But with Jesus in our life, we absolutely can. 
Let's turn to Galatians. That's the first place I want to start. Galatians chapter 1. It's right in the beginning. It's in the New Testament. This is another letter that Paul wrote to a church. And the reason that Paul always says to preach the gospel is that he never once gave us a list of stuff to do without reminding us of the gospel. And what happens so much when we come to church and we start learning principles is that you guys may or may not, and I might not be preaching to everybody this morning, but you may be in a place where you really struggle with God loving you. And so you feel like to be involved in the church, to serve, or to have God love you, he's only going to love that future version of you that you're going to be able to achieve after lots of really, really, really hard work and lots of only watching G-movies, but make sure there's no sorcery in the G-movies, so that puts out every Disney movie, all right? That's the only way it's going to happen. And we start to struggle so much with that and who we are that it's almost paralyzing. Like, I, I think of, I think of uh, Batman Begins, the first one where Christian Bale was Batman. And you remember, if you guys haven't seen it, they break him out of prison. I don't know the whole backstory, but he's a rich kid and he wants to get in trouble or something. I don't remember how it happens. But he's in prison. This guy busts him out. And he basically gives him a chance to be redeemed and be able to fight crime. But first, he has to climb up these big glaciers, find this special flower, climb all the way to the top to this Tibetan monastery and then get trained by ninjas and he's already been beat up in prison he gets beat up all the time he's completely exhausted and then he has this hill to climb and so many times when we come to church or we want to come back to God we feel like we have this incredible hill that we have to climb that we just can't do it I mean have you guys ever felt that you just are so discouraged I just cannot do this anymore and that's the great great joy and good news about the gospel because guess what doing more works equals bad news. Gospel equals good news. So Paul, in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, he's talking to this church. And this is what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all, is it? You add anything to the gospel, it's not a gospel at all because, oh, that's no fun. I can't do that. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned condemned so i carla and i served in salt lake for a while remember that time that an angel visited joseph smith i believe that totally happened but it wasn't god's angel was it because he perverted the gospel and has fooled thousands and thousands of people by perverting the gospel so for us with our default setting being on religion and with everything else that you're hearing and everything else that you're struggling with, let me assure you this morning from the Word that the gospel, the grace of Christ, is the only way to get to heaven. And He transforms your life. You get to continually live in that grace. So there's three big words I want to teach you, and you've probably heard these before. But the first one is justification. If you've ever been in a court, 
You have to be justified. You have to be able to be made right. And so what happens is, is that at that moment that you give your heart to Christ, you are justified, which means that you are forever free from the penalty of sin at that very moment. What happens next is a sanctification process. Sanctification is where we begin to become more and more like Christ throughout our life. And in that moment, we are free from the power of sin through that whole process. The problem with sanctification is, is that we feel that's stuff that we have to do. We have to start getting to work. We have to start working it out. But we get to continue to live in the power of God's grace, even in that sanctification process, because we have to continually come back to the cross. We have to continually look to Jesus. We have to continually remind ourselves of the power of his blood, the power of his spirit in our lives. And basically what we need to do, instead of striving all the time, is that we just need to give up. That's what's so upside down about God's story, isn't it? We have to surrender. That's where our effort comes in. That's where our effort begins and ends, is in us surrendering completely to that power of Christ in our lives. And as soon as he starts getting the glory, and as soon as we start living for him, we will feel more fulfilled and more excited than ever before. And it starts to get easier. Does life? Absolutely not. Life probably gets a little bit harder as a Christian. It doesn't keep you free of cancer. It doesn't keep you free from the cold. It doesn't keep you free from tragedies. It doesn't keep you, get you rich. Guess what? That's a perversion of the gospel, isn't it? Because that means that somehow, by our works, we are earning God's favor. It doesn't happen that way, guys doesn't happen that way. So important for us this morning to remember that. Because as we start to rest in the grace of God and who he is and that incredible glory and get to sit there and be comforted by the fact that his blood has washed us clean, we start to fall in love with our Savior so much and we just want him to be glorified. And then guess what? When we mess up and we're embarrassed, we don't run away and shame, be ashamed from our God. We run to his arms and collapse. Oh God, hold me. I need you. I can't do this on my own. What an awesome thing, right? And isn't it so hard to remember that? Because our default setting is on religion and trying so hard to be accepted. I want to encourage you this morning that when we start Worship 101, if we don't start with that, we've got nothing. Because that's all that worship is. I want to take you to another story because it's too fun to preach out of the Word. And we just need to do that. So let's turn to, Ch- to John chapter 6. I'm going to kind of tell you this story, and I'm also going to read some of it. This is a story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and it's the only miracle, um, if you want to be silly to not call the, uh, crucifix- the resurrection a miracle. Obviously, that's in every gospel. But the first four gospels, this is the only miracle <clears throat> that is in all four. And we get the perspective of each of these um, apostles as they write these. We get to kind of see their personality and their perception of it. John, who wrote this version of the story, um, was Jesus' closest friend. He was the one that Jesus loved, as, as he called himself. And what had been going on as we kind of put these stories together is that a couple things have been happening. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I don't feel confident enough this morning to tell you exactly what order this happened in. But a couple things were going on. First of all, the disciples were just coming back from being sent out by Christ to preach. So they were coming back and they wanted to hang out with Jesus and tell him everything that was happening. We also know that John the Baptist was just beheaded. So that was a big deal. Everybody was pretty devastated about that. Andrew was one of his disciples. We think Philip might have been one of John Baptist's disciples. And Jesus was his cousin. 
So everybody was kind of reeling over that, and they were trying to gather together, and the crowd was so big, they decided to get in a boat and just get away for a little while. Well, they made it to the other side. A whole crowd was already waiting for them. So Jesus preaches to them. He had compassion on them. He healed them. It was getting later in the day, and they were starting to get hungry. So Philip, being from that area and being kind of a number cruncher kind of guy, Jesus says, Philip, we need to get food for all these people. And then Philip says, like all of us do, you don't have any idea what you're talking about, God. That's not even possible. That's going to take eight months of wages. We're totally broke. It's going to be impossible to do. Plus, by the time we get the food and get it back, it's going to be completely pointless. We have to send everybody home. So they're looking for more food. And Andrew, who I just love, he's, I kind of feel like he's one of the most, I know they all wore um, dresses and, and sandals, but I think he was probably the most hippified of all of them. Andrew was a guy that was always seeking and was one of John the Baptist's disciples. He introduced Peter and James and John. And, and Andrew was just kind of a cool guy because he was the first one to meet Jesus, but he really wasn't a part of that inner circle. And it seems to me like, well, I don't know if any of them were okay. They were always fighting for power, but Andrew seemed to be okay with that. And he said, hey, I found this boy who has five loaves and two fish. Jesus says, bring him to me. He breaks the bread. He blesses the food. They start handing it out after they have everybody sit in the grass in groups. We're talking about 15,000 people here, including women and children. And Jesus somehow multiplies this food to the point of being able to feed everyone and having 12 baskets left over. I don't know exactly, I, I, don't, I don't ever want to be somebody that is going to pretend to know everything. I don't. Um, I know that whenever there is new theology, it's not true theology. Okay, I know that. I also know that I have a huge responsibility to teach the truth. And that I'm going to be held accountable for that. Um, and I'm, as I'm looking at these things, um, I hope I don't step over that line because what's so cool about these pictures that God paints, the story that he unfolded, is that there is so much to take from it. And as you get deeper and deeper, the truth of who God is gets so beautiful. And for some reason, we don't know what Jesus was teaching. But we know this story. So even as we start with that little boy, we know that he gave what he had, didn't he? He was willing to give what he had. We know that the disciples didn't know what God was going to do and they kind of thought that his ideas were pretty stupid, honestly. I can't get their tone out of this, but that's what I'm assuming. So let's go down to verse 14 in chapter 6. They had filled up 12 baskets of bread. Everybody was like, wow, that was really cool, right? I mean, what an amazing thing to see. And so we need to always remember, which is so hard for us to remember, at least for me, Israel was occupied by the Romans, right? And they didn't like that at all. They were waiting for their Messiah to come back. And there was people following different rabbis all over the place. And that's why John the Baptist said, hey, I'm just here to point to Jesus. And what happens is, is that since our heart's default is on religion, which means what? From the outside in, right? I change first in my own power, and then I'll be accepted, and that'll make me feel good, and on and on and on. Look what people do here. Verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So this is what I'm feeling is the vibe. Everyone's like, they're hanging out and they're like, Wow, did you just see what that guy did? This guy could take out Rome. We could re reestablish the kingdom, rebuild the temple. 
we hate Rome, we hate Rome. And they just start working themselves into a frenzy. And Jesus is like, whoa, I'm here to change you from the inside out. You're confused. I'm not coming right now to make everything right. I'm coming to change your heart. So Jesus, we know from the other Gospels, let me just fill you in. He sends the disciples out, shoves them out in the boat. I'm sure these guys as fishermen, remember last week we were talking about that, where Jesus told them how to fish. They probably see the clouds on the horizon. Jesus pushed them out. They're like, okay, Jesus. He's like, I'm going to catch up with you later. I need to be alone. He goes up to the mountain to pray. We don't know why he was praying, but let me just give you a couple pictures. First of all, Jesus is our example that he had to pray. He needed to pray. He needed to be with the Father. He needed to be able to set our example that way. He may be there to just have some time to reflect. I'm not sure. But what I really think of this beautiful picture of who Christ is, as he sets this example of how he changes us from the inside out, is that God has told us over and over that Jesus Christ is our advocate before the throne of God. So here these people are. They're seeing this storm. These disciples aren't sure what to do. They're tired. They start rowing out. And where they're going in the Sea of Galilee, there's this valley. Um, I think it's called the Kenneth Valley. And the wind comes in from the Mediterranean Sea. And this big storm is brewing and it's blowing against them. And they're like, why would Jesus send us into this storm? This guy can do a lot of cool stuff, but he has no idea about fishing or being on the lake. It's kind of what they feel like. But in that time where we're in those moments where we don't know where God is and we can't feel him, Jesus is always awake. Obviously, now, when he was a human, he had to sleep. God never sleeps so that we can, which I really like. He's our advocate before the Father. He's praying for us. And they're probably assuming well, he's going to catch up in a boat, or we'll just see him tomorrow. And this is what happens. Verse 16, When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. But now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. So this is about four in the morning. They had been rowing. They'd only made it about three, three and a half miles. And they see Jesus walking on the water, but they don't know it's him. You want to know why? Um, They weren't expecting it, right? I mean, it wasn't like Jesus was walking on this placid water. I mean, he was up there surfing on those things. I mean, he's up and down, and the waves were huge, and he's just walking out. And they are absolutely terrified because they didn't expect to see God in that way. He He says, don't be afraid. Jesus says, hey, it's cool, it's me. So they were willing to let him into the boat. Wasn't that nice? Now, as I was looking at which gospel to to share this story out of, one of the things that was left out here, first of all, was Peter walking on the water, which is a good story. We won't even get into that. And the other one was is that when Jesus got into the boat, the waves calmed. They just experienced who he was. They were terrified. All of a sudden, their Messiah shows up. They see the power of his ability over the elements, how he's in control, how he knew what he was doing, and they just worship him. They all hit the deck, literally. And this morning, as I was, this last couple weeks, as I've been preparing for this, you know, obviously it, it makes sense hey, I'm the song leader, I should teach on worship. But what happens a lot is that I get called the worship leader. 
which means that we think worship is singing. And I wanted to try to find a place in the Bible where we see people worshiping God that gives you a specific point that will maybe leave something in your mind. What they say is that surely you are the Son of God. As they hit the deck in surrender, they said, you are God. And this morning, as I have just been preparing, I feel like God has put this word for us today. Has changed my heart. Is that I've done a lot of messages on worship. We've done messages on the posture of worship, what we're supposed to do. Raising our hands, bowing, all of that. I feel this morning that that's not the word God has for us. That's why we're calling it Worship 101. Because if we give you guys a bunch of ideas of the posture of worship, it's just going to confuse everybody again. We're going to start thinking that somehow God's going to respond to us if we come into church and put on a show. It's not how it works, guys. We respond to the fact that God showed up in our lives while we were yet sinners and died for us. Lived the death that we could never, lived the life we could never live and died the death that we deserve. We are free, eternally free and saved. That's why we respond to Him. That's why in every area of our life, we have to realize that we need to worship the creator, not the creation. God's given us gifts. Some of us hate them. Some of us love them. We look in the mirror. Some of us hate how we look. Some of us love how we look. We've never met anybody that fully loves how they look, but at least they put on that show. We've been given so many gifts. We've been given desires. We've been given things that we love to do, from snowboarding to playing basketball, whatever else. And in our lives, money, our relationships, our religion, all of those things start to become idols in our life. Where we put those things on the throne, we start to put our trust in them, and we start to make them God. One of the worst things that we do all the time, and it still happens for me, is that we make ourselves God. And I know that that's a very, very deep theological issue, but let me explain what that means. That means that we get to decide when something is valuable, we get to decide how much something's worth, and we feel like everything should go our way. And if not, we're going to get upset. We want to be in control, We want to um, choose what traditions to keep in church. We feel so much as we've been raised, right, that we have, we all come from different backgrounds, but there's certain things that get so ingrained in our minds that we absolutely miss the truth of the gospel because we feel like if we're not doing it this way, something's not right. We feel guilty. We feel guilty if we, um, I mean, I, I remember growing up in church the first time we had drums, People literally standing up in protest, plugging their ears, walking out. Those evil drums, you know, because they had their traditions set up and they've completely, I mean, listen, I do the same thing. So I shouldn't, just because I like rock music, I can't get all uppity like I don't do it. I do it in different ways. But when we let our traditions um, blur the gospel and why we're here, for instance, some of you may not like me. That just happens. Like You might just be annoyed by me. Like You try to love me in Christ's love, but you're just annoyed by me. And you really wish that Matt was here. And you know what happens in that? You can't hear the truth of the gospel because I'm just kind of annoying. Or maybe you go to a church and you're just like, I cannot believe how boring everybody was. They only had an organ and they only played hymns and I was just so mad that they don't get it. Guess what? It's not about you. In that moment, as you gather with people, your job is to say, God, you're God. And it's your job to remember and realize what Christ has done for you. And then we can start worshiping him with everything that we have. Is it easy? No. But why is it not easy? 
Probably because we're putting too much effort into it. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Like, it's so backwards. But what we have to do is that we get to know God more and more. We start to discover who he is. We start to fall in love with him more. And I'm not saying that you're always going to feel love for him. But you know who God tells, says are the people that love me? Those that have given him their heart. So you as Christians, for those of you that have given Christ your heart, not those of you that have been baptized as a baby, not those of you who said a special prayer and that you hope you got right in vacation Bible school, but those of you that have given his heart, right? Because if that stuff mattered, you've perverted the gospel, right? Gross. How dare us pervert the gospel that Jesus' blood is not enough for us. So I guess that the thing is that we have to do is surrender day in and day out, remembering and reflecting on what Christ has done for us, the fact that we're free. The fact that God meets us where we are, whether he's going to walk on the water, whatever else he's going to do, whatever storm you're going through. Even if God doesn't make it right here on earth, he is going to make it right. We know that his promises are true. We know that his blood is enough. We know that we're saved. And we know that there's nothing we can do to make him love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. And as we come to worship him and we pour it all out, whether that means going into work and saying hi to the annoying person or, or just... Because why? Because Jesus would, right? And we're supposed to reflect him. And as we start to pour it out, God starts to fill us up. It's this incredible thing of being filled with the Spirit. That is so awesome. Because the fruit of the Spirit is really what? Christ being seen in us. And so we have to get rid of all of that junk. And we can't do it on our own. You can't do it by taking a 10-step program. You can't do it by doing more yoga. You can't do it by praying um, more and and all of these things that you're just doing for the effort. But God asks us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we start to get to that junk out of our life, um, that starts to happen. I just want to go back to a little bit on this grace thing really quick. And we're almost done with this, honestly. But this is a quote from D.A. Carson. His book called For the Love of God, Volume 2. He's a great Bible teacher. And he just talks about the human condition and this idea of what I'm saying um, about grace-driven effort. He says this, quote, People do not drift towards holiness. It's just not our nature. We're not going to do it. It doesn't just happen. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. It doesn't happen. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godliness and godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. How many of you guys, and I'm included, feel like freedom is having no boss? Right? Yeah, exactly. And we equate that right away with God the Father. Because our heart setting is so much on religion, we feel freedom is getting to do whatever I want. Guess what freedom is? The freedom from the penalty of sin. That's what freedom is. You are completely set free from that bondage and the penalty of sin. So with this effort that we have to put in, it all comes down to remembering and realizing who God is. We need to remember that his blood is enough. We need to remember how much he loved us. And as we start to do that, we start to be able to pray, read our word, read the word, be able to love people through his power alone.
Worship is kind of an interesting word because we need to realize that we're trying to come up with a very, very big concept in just a word. And so our English word comes from this. This is the formal definition. The English word worship comes from two old English words. One is we-earth, I think. I mean, it's just worth with an E before the O. I don't know how you say that. Which means worth. Whoa, cool. And Skype, which is not the video chat, but it also means ship, which means something like shape or quality. So we can almost say that it means worth shape. So we can see in this old English word ship, we can see that in modern words like friendship or sportsmanship, which means that we have the quality of being a good friend or the quality of being a good sport. So worthship is the quality of having worth or of being of worth. So what we do is we remember who God is and say your God is, is that he's worthy of our praise. We don't worship snowboarding. God gave us snowboarding. What are you talking about? How easily do we get confused, right? The thing that's so ironic about people that don't believe in God, and we need to pray for them, we're all struggling with that. But they curse God with the very breath that he gave them. And we find so much power in ourselves thinking that somehow we get to be God. We're saying that God has worth, that he is worthy. Worship means to declare worth, to attribute worth, or to put it, you know, in biblical terms, we praise God. And our whole job is to speak, to sing, and to act in a way that reflects the goodness of who God is. So if you're taking notes today, let me try to give you a definition of worship. Worship is a response to God's revelation of himself. Worship is a response to God's revelation of himself. We're not going to sing the song today. We probably should have, and we can. I don't know. We're not going to sing it. But we've sung many times a song called Here I Am to Worship. What a beautiful song. It's an awesome song. I want to encourage you this week as you head into work and you're miserable and it's Monday morning. Say, here I am to worship. As you go home today and you try so hard to put on a face at church and you go home and you just unload all of your anger and discontentment on your family, remind yourself, I'm here to worship God. And as you surrender, you're going to start being able, people are going to be able to start seeing God in you. If we come to a worship experience, and I hope I've made it clear what a worship experience is, it's everything. And no one else was lifted up but Jesus. You're going to find that your own heart is lifted and your spirit is in peace. Because the Bible says that we are enemies with God. And when we come in and we give him our lives, peace is made. We are completely righteous. I thought that what we would do is just sing some songs together because I find that when I take time to remember and realize who God is, um, these songs start to mean more to me because I find that I'm not really doing a sing-along, which I've rarely done in my entire life. Like, who gets around, I mean, you know, only a few families that like folk music actually get around and sing. But I think as humans, we kind of enjoy singing. And so what happens a lot is, is that we come to church and we just kind of enjoy singing. But we're not using it to tell God he's God. We're just kind of singing. And I'm not saying that to 
to give you guys a hard time because how, how could I ever say? But what we do is we confuse people's personality with their spirituality. So the people that are dancing and waving their arms, well, they're obviously way more in love with God with me than me. And then people will say, well, why don't you ever worship God like you worship your football team at the game? And it's like, well, have you ever seen me at a game? I don't even move, <laughs> you know? So today is not a challenge to say that, to challenge you about how to worship, except for that the Bible teaches us how to worship, and that is to say, God, you're God. So as we sing these songs, um, I think it's so important for us whether you're at the church that has the worst music ever or the church that has the best music ever, that if we're going to worship God, we have to take a minute to say, God, you're God, and I want to tell you why I love you. I want to declare, um, which some songs do, some songs uh, are songs of commitment, whatever it is, we start, for me, I start to see the lyrics for real. <laughs> you know, I don't just sing it because it's a catchy song. And then you get to a point where you say, you know what, this isn't about me. And pretty quick, it's not as scary. Your traditions go away and you can start raising your hands. It's kind of cool. Lord, we love you so much. I'm so grateful you use us because I just feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. I pray that your word was heard today, that you were glorified. I just love you. I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you for what you've done in my family's life. I thank you for making me who I am, God. I just couldn't be anything apart from you. I'm so grateful that you have helped me die and come alive in you. God, I just surrender to you again now. You are God in my life. You are the God on the throne of my heart. Do whatever it takes to be glorified in me. God, I pray that you would kill me before I shame the gospel. You're such a good God. We're so excited to spend eternity with you and together. In Jesus' name, amen.